Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Paul Copan. Um, he got his PhD in philosophy at Marquette University. He's a Christian theologian, an analytic philosopher, um, an apologist, an author. He's currently professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida um, and holds the chair of philosophy there and ethics. Um, he's the author and editor of over 40 books, um, including the book that we're going to be talking about today, where we're going to be looking at questions about like ethics and God. Like the, the title is, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Um, Paul, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Zach. Yeah, I'm super pumped for today's conversation. And what we're going to do is look at that new book, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Um, and just kind of dive into a bunch of questions regarding like the book and the topics that are covered and like ethics and whatnot. Um, but before we do that, I'd encourage everyone, if you're new to Adhering Apologetics, um, be sure to click that subscribe button right now um, and all that stuff. And if you value what we do, uh, please consider going to become a patron at patreon.com slash Adhering Apologetics. But Paul, how did you get into all of these like big scary questions about like God and Old Testament ethics that a lot of people are like Deuteronomy? Like you do with Deuteronomy. Oh, I don't want to do that. Um, what got you into that? Well, I've always been interested in biblical studies. Uh, I grew up in a pastor's home and uh, did my undergrad in biblical studies and uh, studied biblical studies and theology uh, during my master's work as well. And it's just been something I've gravitated to. And so having that kind of a background, I, I have just been interested in, in studying the scriptures. And so when the, uh, after September 11th, after the new atheists started to make a big splash and started to critique not just Islam, but also all religion as being poisonous, as being uh, evil and so forth. Uh, and they launched criticisms against the God of the Old Testament and some of the uh, criticisms. I mean, I think it was, it was good for Christians to be aware of these sorts of criticisms, uh, but a lot of the, uh, but but a lot of it was just misunderstanding the Old Testament and misrepresenting the Old Testament. And so I wrote an article uh, in response to it: Is Yahweh a moral monster? And uh, and just formulated some uh, some arguments against the new atheists. And then uh, it turned into a turned into a book, uh, Is God a Moral Monster? And then developed the, the theme of warfare uh, and responding to those uh, particular criticisms uh, with, a, with a book uh, with Matthew Flanagan called Did God Really Command Genocide? And then uh, more recently, this, uh, this topic of uh, Is God a Vindictive Bully? doesn't just deal with some of those critics from outside uh, the church, uh, atheists like Richard Dawkins and so forth, but uh, but also critics from within the church, those who are, uh, in my estimation, undermining Old Testament authority, uh, undermining uh, the uh, you know, the straightforward claim when it says this is what the Lord says, uh, that that is what God is saying uh, to the prophet or the you know is speaking in this situation, but a lot of these. Critics from within, I call them, critics from within the church, Greg Boyd, uh, Eric Seibert, Peter Enns, uh, they are saying that that's not really what God said. That's just the fallen ancient Near Eastern author who is writing uh, or speaking these things. And so when it says, thus says the Lord, that's not necessarily what God is saying. And so uh, so anyway, and I try to address that in my book uh, to show that the there is a, uh, a coherence uh, and a continuity between the God- as represented in the Old Testament, where it says, thus says the Lord, and, and in the New Testament, uh, even on these harsh and severe texts. And so I follow the text from Romans eleven twenty two, 22, when it says, 
behold then the kindness and severity of God. So we see both of those in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. And I show that the texts that are used by these uh, critics from within uh, are, are actually misplaced and uh, often selectively chosen rather than being more comprehensive and, uh, and, and bringing into the, the discussion the larger uh, you know, texture of the biblical text. So let's start off with an easy question, Paul. Like, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? Well, what I try to do in the in the book is to show, yes, that there is a continuity. And a lot of people will pit Jesus, who says, love your neighbor as yourself and turn the other cheek and uh, and love your enemies and so forth. Uh, that this is this is a different uh, theme than what we see in the Old Testament scriptures. And so what we are trying to do in this, in this book is say that, no, this is, uh, you know, you do see a greater emphasis in the New Testament on blessing, on uh, praying for your enemies and so forth. But it doesn't mean that there is no judgment or calling for God to bring judgment upon people who are acting in ways that are, uh, that are unjust, dehumanizing and so forth. Uh, so we see that there is a <clears throat> continuity, even though there is a greater emphasis on uh, on enemy love or not cursing and so forth. But curses do continue, for example. And I, and I, I show how uh, you know, Paul talks about the one who preaches a false gospel in the book of Galatians, for example, let him be accursed. Um, Jesus says that a person who misleads one of his little ones should have a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Uh, we see that Jesus himself is involved in judgment in those Old Testament scenarios uh, in Jude 5. We see that Jesus, after he had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, destroyed those who did not believe. It specifically mentions Jesus in our best New Testament manuscripts in Jude 5. We also see Jesus who, uh, when the false prophetess Jezebel is, uh, is misleading uh, people into sexual immorality uh, is leading them into uh, into idolatry. Jesus says that he will give, he'll cast her on a bed of sickness. This is in red letters in Revelation, and that you know, and that he says he will strike dead Jezebel's followers. So that's Jesus, who yes says love your enemies, who says turn the other cheek, uh, etc. That means being willing to take another insult. It's actually not an act of violence. Um, and, you know, and so what I'm trying to do is show that the New Testament has its own severity, its own harsh judgments, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, sorry, Ananias and Sapphira, for example, uh, in Acts chapter 5, they are struck down uh, under Peter's authority. Um, Paul, uh, in, you know, again, filled with the Spirit uh, in the name of the Lord, uh, calls down judgment upon uh, Elymas, who is obstructing the gospel and so forth. So we see these sorts of things in the New Testament as well. And, uh, and so what I'm trying to do is show that there's a continuity that uh, the people who are these critics from within who try to create this, this dichotomy or this chasm between, say, the Old and New Testaments or the textual God versus the actual God, I say that they're, no, they're, they're actually unified. There is a continuity between the two. And I go through and show how uh, those severe texts in the Old Testament are affirmed in the New Testament, uh, are affirmed you know, often by Jesus himself uh, as being the, uh, the way that God actually worked. Uh, and so rather than hiding behind a, a, the textual God and saying that wasn't the real God who is loving and kind and so forth. Uh, so, uh, so we see throughout the Testaments um, that th there is the, 
severity of God as well as the kindness of God. Hmm. Okay, so you want to say that the Old Testament God is the same as the New Testament God. Um, and one of the main reasons for this is the continuity of like, um, maybe like the actions of God. Because uh, some people like may say like, oh, well, the judgment and like the like violence or whatever of God in the Old Testament, like, ooh, that's really rough. Like, we don't want that. Uh, and you're saying, Paul, that when we're looking like, like, hey, look at Ananias and Sapphira, or hey, look at what Jesus is saying in Revelation, um, we see that same judgment. So you can't like just get rid of the judgment by just trying to get rid of the Old Testament God. Like, that's still there. Um, and that continuous shows that we're really dealing with the same God. Indeed. Yeah. Well put. Awesome. Well, so we're looking at that. Um, and now a lot of your book gets into like the Mosaic law and whatnot. So do you want to talk a little bit about like, what is the Mosaic law, Paul? Okay. Well, basically as you go from, you know, starting in Exodus 20, uh, when God is with his people at Mount Sinai and reveals his uh, law, um, that you see a kind of an accumulation of laws that go through, you know, eventually the book of Deuteronomy uh, with, with narrative tied in. Uh, and so Deuteronomy, the second law, uh, which uh, does a lot of recapitulation of Israel's history and uh, giving and, and various instructions and so forth. Uh, we see that uh, that God is giving, you know, in, in, in within the setting of an ancient Near Eastern uh, culture, we do see a number of law collections, uh, which are uh, fundamentally uh, ideals of wisdom, and sometimes the Mosaic law. Uh, utilizes some of these uh, laws from surrounding nations because there are certain uh, basic principles that are found therein, just kind of like Proverbs. Uh, when Solomon is gathering, for example, uh, Proverbs, uh, there are some parallels to Egyptian uh, Proverbs. And so uh, recognizing that all truth is God's truth, uh, there is some culling of these laws to uh, incorporate into the uh, into the law of Moses it doesn't mean that the law of Moses was entirely made up of those things. No, we see actually much of the Mosaic law is informed by the exodus out of Egypt, that the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, delivered by God from slavery. And this was to inform how the Israelites were to, to treat the vulnerable in the land. And so when you look at the, you know, you see the repeated triad of the orphan, the widow, the alien, uh, and often attached to that is you know, remember that you too were aliens in the land of Egypt. To look out for those who are vulnerable, those who could be easily be taken advantage of, to, you know, for the Israelites, they, they are to remember what happened to them in Egypt. And this is to inform how they're to carry out uh, their uh, concerns for justice, uh, how they are to uh, regard those who uh, in other cultures uh, in the ancient Near East would be easily taken advantage of, would be abused, and so on. So the law of Moses, uh, which get, which gives some of these ideals, uh, these uh, you know, insights of wisdom, again, it's not comprehensive, uh, just like no other, you know, other law collections in the ancient Near East, uh, they were not intended to be comprehensive, covering every facet of life, uh, but they gave exemplary points where judges could look and make judgments based on the kinds of principles embedded within those, uh, those uh, examples of uh, wisdom and, uh, and, and make judgments on uh, and apply them uh, in other ways. So for example, you only have mention of how divorce 
proceedings are to take place in Deuteronomy 24. That's the only place that mentions it. Um, but it, you know, so it, it's, it, it doesn't mean that you have a thorough, comprehensive uh, treatment of that. Um, and, and that's just, you know, how, how those law collections worked in the ancient Near East. Uh, but as we, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this in more detail, you know, what are the differences between the Mosaic law and other ancient Near Eastern law collections? There are big differences that I highlight, uh, but, uh, but that's, kind of the, the gist of, of how it works you know god uh, you know in the ancient near east you know the gods are uh, are you know these law collections are kind of exemplifications of how these kings uh, or rulers uh, or you know are to carry out justice within their land with having the endorsement of their uh, their gods to uh, to carry out these things but as you see as you look more closely when you compare them to the uh, law of Moses with the history of Israel, uh, with God's working uh, graciously uh, and making a covenant uh, with the with the Israelites, uh, there are some marked differences that we could also point out. So one of the things that I think I really drew out of your book when I read it, Paul, was like how the Mosaic law, like what its function was. Um, because I think a lot of the times, like when we hear law, like I think of, and I'm sure a lot of listeners do, if they're in the Western world, like in America, well, I don't know what the British law system's like, but in the American law, like we have a very clear, like, hey, here's what you can and can't do. If you do what you can't do, here's your punishment. Like it's a class three misdemeanor or something like that. Um, how similar is like that version of law that like Americans are like familiar with um, to like the Mosaic law? Like what What's the similarities, differences? Because um, I think that's an important point for people to understand here. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, in my book is uh, God a Moral Monster. You know, I've I, I, I've shifted a little bit in emphasis when discussing the Law of Moses, and and what I talk about in the Vindictive Bully book is that the uh, you know some of the punishments that are mentioned uh, are to be you know stoning and burning and so forth. Uh, these were laws that were typically. Uh, not seen as literal. Uh, they were, in a sense, serving as a warning. You know, this is bad. Stay away from this sort of a thing. Uh, so that's that's one thing to keep in mind. And uh, as you look at, say, the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi, uh, you have uh, very severe punishments for for things that you know it, it seems disproportionate to the offense so for example if a surgeon uh is uh, you know he he botches a surgery then you know then uh, then then his that his you know his family uh or he uh will be you know will be ruthlessly treated uh or if a builder uh is uh, is going into building and a building collapses then his son should be uh should be should be uh should be capitally punished and so forth. Well, if you take these things literally, no one would become a surgeon. No one would become a builder. Uh, those punishments if taken literally would be far too severe for anyone to be, you know, to dare to step into those professions. Um, but it is simply highlighting, you know, don't cut corners if you're a, if you're a builder. Uh, make sure that you are uh, acting with ethical concern, uh, and, you know, and, and treating your patient with care as a surgeon and so on. So you have that kind of a, an emphasis in the same way in the, in the law of Moses. I mean, you do have a couple of examples of capital punishment, uh, kind of examples for this fledgling nation. But basically, uh, when it comes to, say, adultery, which was common, and, you know, and you see that in the, in the law of Moses, as well as beyond in the book of Proverbs, etc., uh, adultery was not typically, you know, it was not settled through going to court and stoning the, the adulterous couple. Uh, it was usually settled 
by way of payment, uh, you know, between families rather than going directly to court. And uh, we also see that, you know, apart from capital, capital punishment for murder, all other potentially capital offenses, 15 uh, others, um, could be commuted to monetary payment. And so when you see eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that's in the context, you know, we see that monetary payment comes up, uh, that this is something that is the alternative to any sort of a capital punishment uh, that takes place. That was normally how things were resolved uh, within, uh, you know, the, within the law of Moses, as well as just in general, working those things out in the nation of Israel. Uh, so it is, so those harsh sounding punishments, uh, as you look more closely, uh, there's more going on here and that the, uh, there is a, uh, a great weight, uh, kind of a ominous weight of punishment attached to it. Uh, but again, it was to warn off people to, uh, to avoid those sorts of actions because, uh, because of the, you know, because it's just a bad way to go. Okay. That's helpful. So what you're saying then is like, like maybe in the American law system, when they, we say that like, well, there's a crime and it results in like, maybe like the death penalty or like the, a class two felony or something like that. We like that, like logically, like just follows in like that situation. But when we're looking at the Mosaic law, um, say those like, if you disrespect your parents, the death is upon you. It's not just like every single time there's disrespect, a child's executed, but it's like, Hey, like this is a very like weighty and heavy thing for someone to do and go against. Um, and we're treating it seriously. And that's why we're saying that so that you can really like reflect upon it. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. These are uh, meant to be alarm bells uh, when you see the uh, punishments associated with them. But in the ancient Near East, uh, these are generally seen as, uh, more hyperbolic, exaggerated sorts of punishments rather than literal ones. Okay. Um, maybe then, like, how is the Mosaic law, like, similar or different to, like, other ancient Near East laws and, like, the way it's carried out? Yeah, as I mentioned that there are some uh, parallel cases. Um, for example, the uh, the case of the Goring Ox. Uh, mentioned the book of Exodus. Uh, there are parallels in, uh, you know, say, the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, you also you know, have certain parallels in Hittite laws with regard to uh, paying the medical fees for someone uh, who has been injured in a dispute. Say, when a when someone who is the, uh, you know, who is in charge of another person uh, in servitude, uh, if someone is struck, then uh, then there is monetary payment that is to be given as a medical fee. Uh, and so I, I go into some detail on, on talking about uh, some of those parallels. But, uh, you know, so there is there are some laws where you know, they're, they're similar. Uh, but when you look at uh, many of the laws when it comes to how to treat foreigners, how to treat servants, how to treat the poor, how to treat uh, the you know, those who are, um, you know, the, the vulnerable in the land, uh, the Mosaic law is by far the most compassionate and, uh, and caring uh, law, set of laws uh, or, or instances of wisdom uh, in the ancient Near East. Uh, for example, when you look at how, uh, how, the, you know, how victims of war uh, are to be treated. When you look at, say, how women are to be treated, um, there is no, you know, that, that there is to be no uh, taking advantage of, say, women who uh, are, you know, who, who are the, you know, whose, you know, whose families have been uh, taken uh, in, in you know, whose you know, husbands, say, have been taken in battle or fathers have been taken in battle. And, and so there is no, not to be a mistreatment of those who are these war captives. Uh, or we can talk about those who are, 
those who are the poor, that they are allowed to glean uh, from fields or take you know, fruit from trees and so forth to work, uh, to have some food that is left over rather than kind of clean, cleaning out your land uh, and not having anything available for the poor of the land to benefit from. Uh, so there are these, uh, these laws or glean, of gleaning that were in, in, in Israel uh, to keep people from sinking into poverty any further. Uh, and, you know, but, but you don't have those sorts of things in other ancient Near Eastern law collections. You have uh, you know, you know, high interest loans in other, uh, in other uh, law collections, uh, as opposed to the Israelites who are not allowed to be charged interest um, be, and thus sink them further into debt. Uh, or you can also talk about how foreigners, foreign, you know, foreign slaves, if they run away to Israel, they are allowed to settle in Israel, any of Israel's cities. Um, so there is this freedom, this refuge that Israel uh, is, is affording these runaway slaves. But in other ancient Near Eastern cultures and their law collections, they had laws to uh, return runaway slaves to their masters. And if, if there were a... Uh, if you are harboring a runaway slave, for example, the Code of Hammurabi says uh, you could be capitally punished uh, for that. So anyway, these are the, the sorts of things that are um, you know, examples of how the law uh, of Moses was different. Uh, you know, I could add to how in the law of Moses you'd have these, um, uh, what should we say? Um, you know, you'd have a you know, you'd have an equality, a fundamental democratic. Uh, um, or democratized ethic uh, for all the people, brothers and sisters and so forth, as opposed to other cultures surrounding Israel where you, they'd have a hierarchy. Uh, they'd have, you know, kind of, you know, and, and punishments, if you were higher up in the social, social ladder, then your punishments were diminished. But if you were lower, then the punishments would be much more severe. Uh, you know, and so we can and go on talking about other things too, uh, about provisions for, for servants, uh, you know, and, and so on. Uh, and even, you know, aliens who had come into the land, there is a greater compassion for those who are aliens. And again, we see 36 times in the Law of Moses, you know, the reminder that you too are once aliens in the land of Egypt. So those are some things that are uh, differences. We, we see that there is, a, I think, a warm uh, heartbeat, uh, you know, uh, that is uh, that that is that characterizes the law of Moses uh, in contrast to these other ancient Near Eastern law collections, where uh, there is it's it's much more severe, uh, much less uh, attentive to those who could be easily marginalized, those could easily be taken advantage of, uh, and of course there isn't that kind of hierarchy in the law of Moses that you see in these other ancient Near Eastern settings. Hmm. Okay, that's helpful. So. In your view, then, Paul, like, would you say that like the Mosaic Law is better than its counterparts seen in the ancient Near East? Like, how does it fare? Because I think you know a lot of people, like, if you're listening to like apologetic stuff, you want like the win for like your side or something like that. So, like, can we say that like the Mosaic Law is better? Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, I'd say at uh, you know there are massive worldview differences that come out in the law of Moses. And I spent a couple of chapters unpacking those differences. Uh, I mean, I didn't talk about, say, Sabbath laws that are unique within Israel, uh, or just even the, uh, you know, the, the theology of the, uh, of the ancient Near Eastern gods uh, in comparison, the theology concerning the ancient Near Eastern gods, as opposed to the monotheism of 
the uh, you know, kind of the ethical monotheism of uh, of the God of the Israelites, uh, where you see uh, that there are uh, significant uh, theological uh, understandings about right and wrong, about the way things are to be ordered in society, uh, that uh, you know that that the scriptures certainly stand out in in the Mosaic Law in terms of how they con contrast to. So I'd say yes, better. I mean, Israel just looks like a a much more, uh, a, a, you know, in at least in terms of the 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 theory uh, and what God is presenting to His people, uh, that this is to be a place where there is uh, shalom, peace uh, that is uh, pursued for and, and justice pursued for those who uh, are the vulnerable in the land, those who are the aliens, uh, those who uh, are are in a difficult way, say because of poverty. And, uh, and 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 uh, don't have a lot of options. Uh, you just don't have that kind of a, you know, a, a broad-based, compassionate ethic uh, in these other ancient Near Eastern law collections. So, at point for point, and I uh, unpack that in my in in my vindictive bully book, you do see uh, that there is a much uh, more uh, you know a, a worldview of kind of a, just a, a much more uh, you know, just. Uh, a much more uh, caring uh, kind of society that uh, that is being advocated uh, in this sort of a setting, at, rather than the um, you know rather than the more harsh and severe sorts of settings in the other ancient Near Eastern law collections. Mm. That's super interesting, Paul. Um, so we're looking at this idea where you think that like there are these very different worldviews that you can see in the law systems and like the Mosaic law um, needs to align with like what we think would be like a moral system. Um, but again, like let's go back to that question about the punishment. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get hung up on like, well, a child like disobeying means that like they have to get killed or like adultery leads to death. Like that, seems, that doesn't seem ethical. Um how did the Mosaic Law, just to flesh it out a little bit more, portray punishment? Um, and like, how does that actually play out? Well, I, I gave the example. I spent a, a chapter, you know, actually a couple of chapters, talking about the punishment related to adultery. And as I said before, the uh, the punishment uh, was typically resolved not through stoning. Uh, it was actually uh, something that was dealt with in a monetary payment. Uh, that the you know you read the book of Proverbs for example in chapter six and seven and you see how uh, this is something that is to be resolved between uh, families between the uh, offending and the offended parties uh, and that there you know I mean it could be I mean it, there is the maximum uh, potential capital punishment but that was not how uh, adultery was dealt with in all that we see in uh, in Israel and its laws. We just don't see it being carried out in a, in, in a capital way. Uh, we also see that there are, uh, you know, punishments for, you know, when we look at, say, the, you know, the potential, you know, if, uh, if a young man is irresponsible, uh, he's supposed to be taking, you know, you know as perhaps the, the eldest brother or something like that, or the, the, the role model of the family, an adult um, who is not taking responsibility for himself, but is a glutton and a, and a drunkard and so forth. Uh, there is a very strong, there is very strong language uh, that is used for this person who is uh, a, 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 you know, again, there's the potential uh, for capital punishment, but again, typically this was not carried out. But a lot of times you'll see things like, you know, shame or guilt or social pressure uh, that are used as ways of correcting the situation. Again, you read this in the book of Proverbs, you see you know, that the, you know, the, the, the person who, 
uh, you know, who is, uh, you know, a, a, a foolish son, uh, is ashamed to his parents and so forth. You know, there is a, a way of kind of speaking into this rather than, oh, this, uh, you know, take him, take him out and have him executed. That just wasn't how it, it worked. But as I said, there are exaggerations, uh, cases of exaggeration that were not intended to be carried out in a literal sort of way. Mm. So these punishments are meant to be almost like exaggerations because like you think they, they emphasize the importance, um, but then it's not like always going to be a literal way. Do you think it was like ever literal, a literal way? Like, do you ever think there was like a child put to death in Israel for like not, not obeying their parents? Like, do you have any thoughts about that question? Well, I mean, you do have two paradigm cases, one blasphemy and the other of uh, breaking the Sabbath where there is capital punishment in the, in the law of Moses. So you do see a couple of examples. Um, but as I said before, the, the, say the, you know, as you read subsequent chapters, you, you know, in you know, subsequent texts in the law of Moses, or even within the law of Moses, when it comes to, say, adultery, you just don't see capital punishment carried out. Um, you, uh, you, you, you know, there, there is plenty of that uh, going on in Israel, but the way it's resolved is not through stoning, for example. Uh, or you also have the, like I said, Proverbs uh, utilizes shame and uh, and guilt and social pressure to try to correct the ways of those who uh, are, are acting in this way, who are going this way, rather than simply presuming that, uh, say, a, a you know, capital punishment uh, is to be is to be carried out here. Uh, this is just the nature of the way things were in these uh, ancient Near Eastern law codes, where you did have exaggerated penalties, as I mentioned. In fact, you could even have cases that are given in the Law of Moses, like the Goring Ox case, where we actually don't even have, and you know, you have very rare instances in all of the uh, many thousands of instances of, uh, of of case law in the ancient Near East. You know, very little is mentioned about any sort of a goring off, but again, this is seen as a paradigm case. Uh, and so, so you know, and I and I go into and, and unpack some of these textual matters where uh, where I you, you look at these these cases and you see that they're simply given as instances of wisdom and things to avoid and so forth, rather than seeing as being literally uh, implemented. So just encourage you to take a look at the book and see uh, how all of this is teased out. Uh, but what I spend time focusing on is the uh, is the matter of uh, of adultery, and and again keep in mind when it uh, when when we look at say the 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 son who is uh, cursing his his father and mother and so forth. Yes, it's potentially capitally punishable, but uh, but on the other hand, uh, as I said, you know, number thirty five says that you know, basically. You know, biblical scholars take the view that uh, that you know out of the sixteen cases where there could be ca potential capital punishment, uh, only murder was uh, you know was to be carried out uh, you know in terms of capital execution, capital punishment. Mm -hmm. But all others, the assumption goes, is that they could be commuted to uh, payment. Uh, so that that was not, you know, again, it, it sounds, you know, there's the harsh sounding capital punishment, but typically those were commuted to monetary payment to, to, to set things right. Okay. Yeah. That's super helpful, Paul. So thank you. Let's keep rolling. Um, here's an interesting question. Um, what did it mean for David to be a man after God's own heart? Yeah. The, the common assumption is that David had a godly character and therefore 
uh, was, you know, at least the assumption that, you know, man of God's own heart, he has a godly character, but what's he doing committing adultery or sending Uriah to his death on the front lines? Uh, you know, and, and, and how do we make sense of that? Well, there are two ways of understanding that. If you look at the very phrase, you know, um, after God's own heart or according to one's heart, um, there is, you know, it, it actually means, you know, following the purposes of one's heart or what one's heart intends. Uh, so, for example, uh, in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, uh, Jonathan, in this battle against the Philistines, he and his armor bearer, uh, you know, are talking and, the, and Jonathan wants to go up and fight against these Philistines and scale these rocks to go up and fight against them. And the, and the armor bearer says to Jonathan, do what is in your heart or do what is according to your heart. Uh, so do what you intend, uh, act according to the purposes of your heart. And, uh, and, and we read that about that in the Psalms, that, that phrase is used uh, according to one's heart, that is according to one's own purposes, one's own intention. And so when we, when we see that David is someone who is a man after God's own heart, it is someone, even though flawed, even though imperfect, this is someone whom God is going to use to accomplish his purposes according to God's own heart, that, uh, that he is going, that David is going to be the, uh, the, uh, forebearer of the of the Messiah, uh, he you know he is going to do certain things. He's going to fill a certain role according to God's sovereign purposes. He is not going to build the temple like Solomon is. Uh, that is not according to God's heart uh, for uh, for David to do that. Uh, and so that is really the you know it doesn't mean that there can't be overlap of in terms of character. I mean God obviously desires uh, for David to have a, a godly. Uh, character. And of course, we do see instances where David, you know, when he's confronted with this sin um, of murder and, uh, you know, and uh, adultery with Bathsheba, he, you know, immediately repents uh, before Nathan in Second uh, Samuel 12. Uh, and, and, and Samuel says, and, and uh, Nathan says, the Lord has forgiven you, even though at what follows, you know, there are penalties that come along with that, even though God forgives him. Uh, so, so there is, you know, so we do see David as more of a, a tragic figure. There are these highs, uh, there are these many positives, you know, David's, uh, you know, Psalms are, uh, you know, there, it expresses a lot of, uh, you know, dedication, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of piety. Uh, but also we see that David can, uh, can definitely be, uh, misdirected uh, in his heart and, uh, and 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 pursue the wrong sorts of things and and that he could, when he falls he falls hard uh, so there is that uh, aspect of things as well so so I, I so as I said there can be overlap uh, of those two ways of understanding uh, after God's own heart uh, but the primary one is that uh, the, David has been selected to fulfill the purposes that God has for him that there are certain things that God is putting into place. Um, as you know, as the king, as the monarch, as as one who's going to lead Israel, uh, but again, there are a, a lot of flaws in David as well, and it's important to keep that in mind. And, and as one of the things that I point out is that uh, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we see that the king uh, of Israel is warned against, you know piling up riches against gathering horses, against going back to Egypt and so forth and accumulating wives. And, and we see, as you read the narrative about David, you see that he is gathering wives, he is gathering riches, he's gathering horses and so forth. So we see that the chinks in the armor 
uh, you know, there's kind of a subtle mention of these things that David is going against those very things that God directed the kings of Israel to avoid. And then we see kind of everything coming crashing down on David too, uh, because he has not been attentive to his own personal life and setting the, uh, the, the model uh, for uh, those who are to rule in Israel. So when we say that David's a man after God's own heart, what you think is it's more about is God choosing David to fulfill a purpose um, and less about like David say, like we always like, or, like I always thought of it um, or you hear in church about David, like pursuing God constantly, like even when he struggles and falls short, he, he gets back up and pursues God. It's more about what God, like the position and the role God put David in. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's the, and again, just, just, Look up the phrase, you know, and I, I give a number of uh, instances of this uh, in the Psalms as well, uh, as well as, uh, you know, say, First Samuel, uh, that this is something that, that God, you know, God is directing, his, you know, the fulfillment of his purposes, and David fits into the accomplishment of those purposes. And so, therefore, we have, in this case, someone who is uh, operating according to the purposes of God, in fulfilling the role that God has for him. Uh, and that is the, the primary emphasis there. But again, as I said, it doesn't mean that there isn't any overlap, um, that there can be overlap with uh, someone who uh, truly has a heartfelt piety and so forth. Um, but you know, the, the, point, the, the point that I'm bringing this up is that there is a, uh, a, a lack of congruence. You know, people bring up, well, what about David? You know, he's supposed to be a man after God's own heart. How do we make sense of this? Well, this is a way of helping to make sense of it. Okay. Yeah. That's super helpful. Um, now let's look at the question of hardening hearts. So mm -hmm. Paul, like we look at, like you can look at like Pharaoh or other examples. Um, why would God have any interest in like hardening hearts? Well, God doesn't want to harden hearts. Uh, but basically what God is doing is, is allowing people who have already hardened their own hearts to, uh, to, you know, God withdraws his gracious influences and therefore allows people to carry out their desires of their heart uh, without a divine, uh, you know, you know divine influence to counter that. So Pharaoh, for example, you know, God, you know, Pharaoh is not a nice guy when we meet him in the first place. Uh, he's uh, very nasty. He is, uh, uh, has no concern for God. And so God, you know, tells Moses that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, uh, which is already hard. And uh, is going to use that hard-heartedness to bring up, bring forth signs and wonders in Egypt to show that the God of Israel, the God of the slaves, is greater than the gods of the superpower of the day and greater than Pharaoh himself. And so it, it's a picture of showing that God is not going to be, uh, you know, that God can, you know, and, and Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9, that God can harden whom he hardens. It doesn't mean that uh, God is going to harden a soft heart. Uh, God, you know, God desires for people to be saved. God desires for not, you know, for no one to perish. Uh, that God des does desire the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from their evil ways and live, Ezekiel tells us. So God is definitely involved in the workings of these, uh, you know, the outworking of his purposes. And he's going to use even hard-hearted people to accomplish his purposes. So Pharaoh, for example, uh, and also, you know, other, you know, as you read about God's hardening people's hearts, and I go into the New Testament text as well, uh, you know, where, where there are, you know, where, where it seems that God is hardening people's hearts. But as you look at the context of these things, you see that God is very much involved in 
the in, in trying to persuade people, giving them a way out. And so people are being very, you know, as people are being hard hearted uh, in their, you know, according to their own desires, then they are going to therefore be, um, you know, you know, they're, you know, that God is going to simply say, okay, have it your way. And that we are going to, uh, and that we are going to basically um, have a, uh, you know, we're just going to let you show that you are not going to, you know, you know, yeah, yeah, that I'm going to give you a chance. And if you refuse, then we're fundamentally going to uh, allow you to have the, uh, you know, just we'll allow you to have your way and we'll see how God's purposes are worked out as a result. So those are some things that are, are important to keep in mind that God, it's like a two stage hardening process that God, uh, that God is involved in here. So when we look at these different stages, uh, what we see is that God is, uh, you know, at the first stage, humans harden their own hearts. Second stage, uh, God says, okay, have it your way. Doesn't mean that God always does that. God is often persuading, seeking to influence and so forth. Uh, but there are just times when God says, okay, you know, uh, I'll, uh, I'll turn you over to the desires of your own heart and you will see where that goes. So that's basically what we're talking about when God is hardening people's hearts. God doesn't desire to do it. God doesn't delight in doing it. But on certain occasions, he, he will work with uh, the desires of people's uh, hearts and show that he is sovereign uh, over these things, that people uh, who resist him uh, or attempt to resist him, uh, that God is going to show them, you know, God is going to be receive glory. Uh, God is going to exalt his name uh, even through that kind of a process. Okay. So in a specific example, like say Pharaoh, what's happening here is you have someone who out of their own free accord is already headed down like a, a bad path of like resisting the desires of God and, and whatnot. Um, and that's kind of like the first stage. And then when God hardens the heart, like Pharaoh's already like resistant and hesitant of his own free accord to God. And then Pharaoh's like, okay, have it your way. And right. or God's like, have it your way, Pharaoh. And then he hardens his heart and like just closes him off to like God and the will of God and whatnot. Yes, that's right. Yep. So yeah, and, and I spend a good bit of time looking at various various texts um, that that show uh, how this hard heartedness is is something that uh, that God doesn't delight in doing, uh, but that God will do uh, according to His own sovereign purposes. But God would rather have people soften their hearts. And one case one one case is where. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned Psalm eighty-one, ten, where God is telling the Israelites, you know, He's, you know, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Uh, open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But then it goes on to say that Israel resisted God; that they turned to the stubbornness of their own hearts, and so God gave them over to that stubbornness of their own hearts. And, and God says, "I wished, <laughs> I wish I could have given you." you know, the finest of, of, of wheat and, you know, and, and honey and so forth. But basically you refused. And it's kind of like what, uh, what God says in Isaiah chapter five, where he's talking to Israel, the vineyard, and God plants this choice vine, removes all the stones from the field and so on. And, uh, you know, and, and expects there to be, justly expects there to be good fruit, but it only produced worthless grapes, God says. And, he says, what more was I to do for my vineyard than had been done in it? So God does his part. He takes the initiative. He's the one who uh, offers what he, what he can do. 
Um, but Israel still has the capacity to resist the purposes of God. And so, so that's where we see maybe stage two coming in where God turns them over to the hardness of their hearts. Mm, okay, that's really helpful, Paul. And I think it helps to draw out that this isn't just God, um, but it's the free will or the man's decision to become like in this hardened state and God's like, okay, have it your way. Um, that's helpful. So let's look at then the question of like the Old Testament view of woman. Obviously, this is a very like controversial like topic. Like generally speaking, like Paul, how do you think like the Old Testament views like the role in like women? Because people say like, well, the Old Testament's like against women or hates women or something along those lines. Yeah. Well, of course, you look at the biblical vision, uh, you see at the very beginning, God makes human beings, male and female. In his image, uh, there's a fundamental equality uh, that exists here, uh, that, uh, that there is no hierarchy uh, between man and woman. Uh, and so this is something that sets the groundwork for, uh, for you. as you look at Israelite laws, you see that um, the uh, you know, Ten Commandments, for example, you know, honor your father and your mother. Uh, this is, to, you know, there's a fundamental equality that is there. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it says, honor your, you know, you know honor your, 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 your mother and your father, uh, reverses that. And the book of Proverbs, you know, listen to your father, listen to your mother. These are both sor- sources of wisdom, sources of authority, uh, that the, that the wise, uh, son will, uh, will pay attention to what both his father and mother are saying, given their experience, given their wisdom and so forth. And, uh, and when you look at the, you know, so you, there's this presumed equality. It's not as though uh, the, some people will say, well, look at the, the, the last commandment, you know, don't covet your neighbor's uh, donkey or his ox or his wife and so forth. Well, they, instead they'll say, look, this is just, a, you know, like a, the woman is a piece of furniture. Well, just read a few verses earlier. It says, you know, honor your father and mother. Uh, you know, th- it's not honor your father and a piece of furniture. Uh, there's clearly that, that, that fundamental equality that's there. And I go into detail in the, in the Vindictive Bully book and talking about how you do have leaders within Israel who are women, uh, that they are, you know, like people like, you know, uh, Deborah, uh, Miriam, uh, and others who are, you know, strong women. If you look at the, the, the woman in Proverbs 31, who is, uh, you know, very much an initiative taker, someone who works, almost in, in parallel to her husband at the gates. Uh, she is engaged in real estate. She's engaged in caring for her family. She's engaged in commerce and so forth. She's assessing a field and buying it, et cetera. So taking a lot of initiative. And, and this is something that is, you know, you, you see someone who is not kind of an, you know, kind of an abject, uh, uh, you're, you know, kind of who is, you know, kind of subject to uh, some sort of a domineering husband, but someone has freedom, someone who operates, uh, you know, and has has her own, as it were, professional life and, and does things uh, without having to consult with her husband and so forth. I'm not saying that you don't ever do that, um, you know, when it comes to bank accounts or whatever, but but you just clearly seeing that there's trust, that there is a, a, a relationship that is understood to be, uh, you know, I think just you know warm and uh, respectful, uh, mutually respectful, and uh, and that there can be you know both of them you know, involved in uh, in various uh, roles uh, without any sort of conflict and, and having their own areas of expertise, as it were. Uh, so so one of the things that I draw out of in the book is that women had their own roles in Israelite society as their own, as professionals, whether it be as midwives, as, uh, you know, as counselors, as, you know, you even have singers and so forth. They had their own areas of professionalism and, uh, and, and the notion of kind of 
you know, male domination or whatever in Israel is really not a is really not what is is seen there, but rather uh, you know one one um, biblical scholar, um, Carol Myers, she says that uh, you have what's called heterarchy: women ha being experts in certain areas and men being experts in other areas, either areas of professionalism. And they were considered authorities and uh, and experts in those areas, and they had that kind of a complementary role within within Israel. Now there are some uh, some texts that uh, that people uh, will will bring up. Uh, they'll mention things like, well, war rape, for example. You know, it could be uh, like the, the the situation of the Midianites that you could take Midianite women to be your wives and so forth after a war. Uh, and you know, some people say. That was, you know, this is biblical justification for war rape. Well, actually, not at all. Uh, when you see sexual relations, uh, you know, they're, they're not to be uh, taking place in the battlefield, but within marriage. Uh, Genesis 2.24, for this cause, a man will leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife, the two will become one flesh. Uh, that sexual relations come after uh, marriage. Uh, and, uh, and, and in Israel, uh, when there is warfare, men were to abstain from sexual relations. We see that with David when he's going to uh, to Nob and he receives the holy bread and he's asked uh, by the priest to have your men had sexual relations with women. No, they have not. Uh, Uriah the Hittite, when he's uh, when David brings him back to have uh, so that he can have sexual relations with Bathsheba to cover up his own adultery. Um, you know, his you know Uriah says, "How can I go to lie with my wife when?" my own uh, brothers are you know, fighting in battle. And so he refused to go in uh, because of the, the sacredness uh, of that undertaking. Uh, so we see over and over again, that sort of thing. And, and of course, Deuteronomy 21 talks about how, how this is to be conducted. You know, when, you, when there is a, uh, someone who's potential bride after warfare, that this woman is to have uh, a month to mourn her own culture, you know, clips her nails, shaves her hair, puts on other clothing, etc. And then uh, after a month, then there can be the decision made about taking this woman on uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a wife, but no sexual relations take place uh, before that time. Uh, this is, there is a, something that is respectful. It's honoring the woman. Uh, she's not to be shamed or humiliated if the marriage is not uh, going to take place. So there is a concern for the well-being of that woman. So those are some things that I uh, would throw in there that's, that, you know, and again, I have a whole chapter devoted to the question of war rape, something that was common in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, but was not to take place in, uh, you know, in Israelite culture uh, because of the command of God. One thing that I really like that you're doing, Paul, that I think helps, hopefully the listeners, it's helping me understand these things better and help, hopefully it's helping you guys, is that I feel like a lot of times, especially like in these debates about like, well, is the Old Testament just or da, 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 people love to pull up the like two, three, four verses that may like support their view. Um and what you're doing, which I think is a really good thing to do, like when you're doing like, exegesis in general, um, but especially when you're considering like these difficult questions, is is we have to get the broad strokes. Like if we're thinking about how the Old Testament views women, we got to think about what it's saying, like all the way back in Genesis, and like, well, what are women doing as you go through the Old Testament and things like that? Um, and we can't just look at pass like just a few passages and like draw everything from those couple. Um, like if you want to have a difficult passage about like, well, is war rape around? Well, we should look at that. But we also have to consider like the general context of how women are viewed. Um, and I think for people in these discussions, that's a super helpful way to go through these things. 
Mm, yeah, I appreciate that. And one of the things that I differentiate, uh, you know, is you know the you know is is the vision of the Old Testament, and the laws of the Old Testament. Sometimes the laws are focusing on human sin, human, uh, kind of, you know, you know, human what to do in, you know, if this sort of a sin is committed or, uh, you know, and, you know, it's not, it's not reflecting the ideal. It's simply saying, well, what happens if something goes wrong? Uh, so a lot of people focus on, you know, what happens if something goes wrong, rather than looking at the broader vision of what God's ideals are, uh, say, starting in Genesis 1 and 2 for, you know, for male and female. Uh, what does that look like? And uh, and so so we see a fundamental humanity uh, of, uh, of of women, uh, and uh, you know even you know when the uh, the daughters of Zelophehad, uh, who are in this situation where the the inheritance would typically go to a male heir, and if there's no you know no male no, no son that might go to uncle so and so, well these women bring the the problem up to Moses and Moses says no these and, and God tells Moses no these women are right they should receive the inheritance that it should not simply default to the male so there is that kind of a an understanding uh, that the of, of, of fundamental equality uh, that is there and sometimes there is this this thinking that is not in line with biblical perspectives within a certain culture. And so we see that kind of a correction taking place within the law of Moses, which I think is very, very significant. So, so yes, look for the broader vision. Uh, don't simply look at, oh, look at that law. Well, the law is often seeking to address a certain problem, or we read in, uh, in the, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says that Moses permitted laws regarding divorce and no doubt others, uh, because of the hardness of human hearts. It's not as though these are the ideals. So what we need to do is to get some get our bearings, is to look at the ideals that the Old Testament spells out, rather than looking at, oh, look, you've got divorce permitted here. Uh, that's not a, that divorce isn't a good thing. Well, we know that, but but again, what is the, 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 the broader heartbeat? Uh, what is the broader vision? Uh, that undergirds the uh, the the Old Testament texts and and to, and to look the, to those ideals uh, and to see that human beings often fall short of carrying out those ideals. It's almost like I, I just connected to like when we're, I was in middle school and you learn about like the impressionist artist, like when you're looking at like say Monet, like if you get really close to the painting and like squint at it, you'll have no clue what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. But when you zoom out and you can see the whole picture, it makes a lot more sense of what's happening. Um, yeah, so. absolutely. Good, good image. Yeah. So, Let's look at another big, like, difficult question. Um, a lot of people talk about, like, women in the Old Testament, but a lot of people also talk about, like, Old Testament, like, slavery. Um, like, how did the Old Testament view, like, slavery or the lack thereof? Well, a, a few things. Um, one is we need to be careful about turning the language of, quote, slavery in the Old Testament into something <clears throat> that is identical to the uh, the antebellum South, you know, what we're familiar with in modern slavery. Of course, there's a, a negative emotional, uh, you know, um, you know, you know, kind of, kind of, yeah, an emotional uh, alarm bell that goes off when we may read the term slave or slavery in the Old Testament. And that's unfortunate. Uh, modern, you know, modern versions use that language. And I think without really an eye to how that is perceived in society, 
um, when the when the King James Version came out in 1611, it only had one one mention of the word slave in the Old Testament, and and that was the you know in from the Book of Jeremiah, and the word wasn't even in the in, in the biblical text. It was inserted for the sake of translation smoothness um, by the by the translator, and uh, and and so why after all that we've gone through in the modern era with slavery and racism and so forth. To, to include these sorts of you know, terms that really are loaded emotionally. And so I think it, it brings a lot of confusion to people and they think, oh, that's, you know, the, you know, people were quoting, you know, when people in the, in the antebellum South were saying the Bible permits slavery and so forth, look at this kind of language. Um, well, you know, the, the problem is it's, it's very, very different. And I, my point in, in writing both the Moral Monster book and the Vindictive Bully book, I, I say that if the law of Moses had been properly followed, we wouldn't have had these kinds of deep, um, you know, horrific, you know, this horrific treatment of, of, of human beings if, if the law of Moses were being properly followed. So what I do is I show how the, the law of Moses is actually, you know, the term, you know, slave, uh, sometimes translated is better translated servant uh, or someone who is in a dynamic dependency relationship with uh, someone else. Uh, so, for example, I mentioned the book of Exodus where uh, where the Israelites are slaves. This is a term evidim uh, servants of uh, of uh, Pharaoh. But then we read that God wants to, Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. So they're moving from one servitude to another. One is bad, one is good. One is a bondage, one is liberation. And the term servant, uh, you know, Eved, is one that could be used in a very neutral uh, or even honorific way. Uh, Moses and Joshua are called the, the Eved Adonai, the servant of the Lord. And so there is this kind of a uh, language that is being utilized uh, that, you know, again, we ought to avoid that association with uh, with modern slavery, because it it you know you you did not have you could not do whatever you wanted uh, to a uh, to a male you know to a male or female servant uh, in in Israel. Uh, there were there were you know you had if you knocked out his eye uh, or tooth, then you had to let the servant go uh, because uh, because he has been injured by you. Uh, so there there is concern for the physical well being of the servant. Uh, that there is concern for the, you know, those who go into servitude, they go in because they're poor, they're they're impoverished, and so there is the, uh, there are gleaning laws, there are uh, term limits uh, to how long you can serve within someone's household, and later on the prophets uh, will uh, will chastise Israelites for keeping people longer as servants than the law of Moses permitted. And so forth. So there, there are these, uh, there are these laws in place that are to keep the Israelites from taking advantage of those who are vulnerable. Um, and uh, and so I, I spend a lot of time looking at Leviticus 25, where you have foreign servants. And uh, basically, what I argue there is that the language that's used of Gentiles, of foreigners uh, and aliens who are coming in uh, to as servants within Israel. That same language is used of Israelite servants themselves. And so I, I, I put a few charts together to, to show how they actually fit uh, together, that there is not a de dehumanization of, say, foreign uh, servants, 
um, you know, because they can actually become persons who prosper within Israel as well, that they don't have to be stuck in that kind of servitude, but they can actually become persons of means so that they can actually take on an Israelite servant and so forth. So a lot of that transactional language is, is very much like our sports language today, where you have team owners, where you have uh, owners who are buying or selling players, et cetera, trading them. Uh, there's that transactional language. It doesn't mean that, you know, that basketball or football players are somehow uh, you know, less than human. So keep that sort of a transactional language in mind as you read the text, uh, that that doesn't diminish uh, their value. And so what I, I spent a good bit of time looking, at, especially at Leviticus 25, which is the most, I think, the, the text that is, that is brought up most often with regard to servitude. So anyway, that's a little, little bit on, on, on servitude in Israel. Yeah, that's that's very helpful, and I encourage people to check out the book um, for further information. Um, one more question about like Old Testament ethics: um, What like the Old Testament talks about like haram warfare and like the invasion of Canaan? Can you talk a little bit about like what did that look like when we're thinking about the invasion of Can Canaan? Like, what was going on here? Yeah. Okay. A few things. Um, one, the term haram, or you know, sometimes translated utter destruction or haram, utterly destroy. Uh, you know, the what, one of the things that I go into is, is say, show how there is, we talked about hyperbole or exaggeration in the punishments uh, in the Mosaic law. We also have exaggeration in these war texts as well, uh, where you have, you know, you compare Israel's war, war, war language to that of other ancient Near Eastern cultures. You see that there is great exaggeration. Uh, that is being utilized, uh, you know, leaving no survivor, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, man, woman, young and old, etc., cetera, uh, are, are, are allegedly uh, wiped out. Well, one of the things that's different about the Israelite uh, warfare language is that the Israelite war text will also mention plenty of survivors, and you see that very thoroughly. So even though Joshua carries out the commandment of Moses and, and faithfully obeys it, we still see at the end of the book, of Joshua, lots of nations that still need to be driven out of the land, um, and and so we we will see that you know in for example um, you know Deuteronomy, which intensifies the language of uh, Exodus and Numbers, the same language that's used, but then it'll say you know show no pity, uh, you know leave alive nothing that breathes, and so forth. Um, you know Deuteronomy tends to intensify the language, but I'll give an example of how this works. You you see. In Numbers 21, the Israelites fighting against the two Amorite kings, Sihon and Og, and we read uh, toward the end of that chapter that the that Moses, you know, again he wants to pass through peacefully, um, but is resisted, and so he's when he's fighting, when the Israelites are fighting against them, it says they fought against the king, his sons, and his army. So it looks like it's a kind of typical battle that's taking place here. Well, when you get to Deuteronomy 2 and 3, it recounts those battles. But instead of just mentioning the king, his sons, and his army, which is like the, the account on the ground, it mentions man, woman, young, and old, you know, that they were, quote, utterly destroyed, whatever that's supposed to mean. And, uh, and, but, but we clearly know from the original scenario that they, there were not the, the noncombatants there on the scene. And that's typically what happened in the, is, the, the warfare that the Israelites engaged in. Typically, they're disabling raids. They'd go in, fight against the city. Um, they only destroyed three cities, you know, the you know, Jericho, Ai, and Hatzor. Uh, those are the three cities that were burned. 
But basically, the other ones were left intact, and God himself had told the Israelites that they would inhabit cities that they didn't build, homes that they didn't uh, uh, didn't make for themselves, you know, eat from trees that they didn't plant, and so forth. So it wasn't as though it was just kind of raising everything to the ground. Uh, but they were they would go and fight in these raids and then go back to their base camp at Gilgal. Uh, and uh, and also part of this was uh, there was a defensive. Uh, warfare being taken. Remember the the uh, the Israelites came into Canaan. They fought against Jericho and I. And uh, of course, the Gibeonites tried to make an alliance with the Israelites. And then, and then the other kings uh, in Canaan aligned themselves with the, with each other to fight against the Israelites. And uh, so the Israelites are fundamentally throughout the book of Joshua fighting defensive battles rather than offensive ones. That's the, that's the the majority. Uh, you know, you know, the majority of battles are, are, are defensive ones. And we also see that uh, that God is, you know, as, as you read Joshua, it looks like, oh, there's kind of a this dramatic uh, blitzkrieg, this uh, this uh, massive invasion uh, and taking over the land. Well, if you keep reading in, in the book of Judges, it says the Israelites could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. So what's going on here? Well, you have the more exaggerated um, kind of ancient Near Eastern trash talk. We totally destroyed those guys. We annihilated them. Uh, but yet there are plenty of survivors. And so the book of Judges gives to us a more real, realistic assessment, as it were, that, you know, of not being able to drive them out uh, of their other cities, out of their out of the land and so forth. So we see, you know, and the main thing, you know, and again, sometimes the term utterly destroy doesn't mean any d destruction of any sort. Uh, at the end of Leviticus, for example, um, fields or oxen uh, or human beings are haram, that is, they're set apart, but they're to serve for, you know, in, you know, for the, Le the Levites and the priests in the tabernacle. Uh, they're to be, you know, you know, uh, available to them for service to the to the tabernacle, and uh, and so they have a certain designated uh, role. But it's not as though the animal is destroyed or the servant is destroyed or the uh, the field is somehow set ablaze. Uh, sometimes the term haram, uh, you know, sometimes translated utterly destroy, simply means exile, or it could simply mean defeat. Um, the you know when when uh, when uh, we read about Saul, who, quote, utterly destroys the Amalekites. And again, they fought at a citadel city. And uh, in verse 5 of 1 Samuel 15, they fought this battle uh, where there weren't any women and children, even though it does say man, woman, young and old, because the, the Kenites were there at that battle site. And, and Saul sent word to them saying, we're going to fight against the Amalekites. We wouldn't have an issue with you. So the Kenites end up leaving. Uh, so in this battle, uh, we're told that uh, that Saul, quote, utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Well, you know, when you when you well, he defeated them, um, but we read later on in the book that there are plenty of Amalekites still remaining, and David is fighting against the Amalekites later on. So, so even though the narrator says Saul utterly destroyed them, we see that there are plenty of people still hanging around. Uh, but it simply means that Saul had a defeat. Uh, he defeated the Amalekites. Uh, but it wasn't that kind of exhaustive sort of a, you know, going throughout uh, and, uh, and 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 destroying everyone. Uh, that just, you know, so so again, that word has a different connotation. Like I said, sometimes it can be defeat. Sometimes it's parallel to exile. Uh, you know, that God uses this language of utter destruction. Uh, however, that's to be translated in or haram in Numbers 25, where it says that God is going to, God said he is going to, you know, utterly destroy 
uh, Judah and leave Judah's cities in everlasting desolation. Well, that only lasted 70 years, and we know that the nation of Judah survived but went into exile. So, so again, I, I go into a lot of detail. There's a lot of more nuance that's involved in how to understand that word haram. Uh, but primarily the task for the Israelites was to drive out the Canaanites. And that's when you when you look at the language of you know, driving out or dispossessing and, quote, haram, utterly destroying or whatever, you know, the, it, it's you know, proportionally like three to one of, of driving out. That's the, the major emphasis. And if you're driving out them, you know, then you're not killing them. And of course, the, the Canaanites could have simply, knowing the power of God from Egypt, they all knew that. They had 40 years of preparation for this. And also they knew the power of God, the pillar of cloud by day, the fire by night, um, as the, 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 you know, God's presence was in the camp of the Israelites. Um, that the, the, you know, the Canaanites, knowing all of these things, could have simply relocated rather than having to fight against the uh, the Israelites who are coming into the land. So a bunch more stuff could be said here, but maybe that gives a, a little bit of a, uh, uh, something of a, uh, an idea of what is, what is going on in these texts. But we don't have anything that looks like genocide or ethnic cleansing or something like that. It's uh it's, it's a, it's a much different scenario here. That's what I was going to say um, with the question of like ethnic cleansing. Like, so I think at least when I've heard the word ethnic cleansing, I think of the idea that like someone's going into a land or moving a group from that land. Um, is that not what's happening here with like the Canaanites? Like what's like, am I wrong with my definition or like what's happening? Yeah. Well, I mean, what you do see is that God is giving the Israelites a, uh, you know, he's giving them the gift of the land that he's promised to Abraham. But, you know, as Genesis 15 says, God is going to wait over, you know, it turns out it's going to be more like half a millennium. Uh, before the Israelites can go into the land. Uh, so before that time, they couldn't have gone into land because the sin of the Amorites had not been, you know, ripened, you know, reached, reached uh, its, its limit. Uh, so, so we see that, you know, God is bringing simultaneously judgment upon the Canaanites, um, vomiting them out of the land, spitting them out of the land. Uh, and this is uh, the same language that's used for the Israelites when they are uh, going into exile. The land is vomiting them out. It's not as though they're you know, literally, um, you know, annihilated or something, uh, but simply being displaced. And, uh, and so God is bringing judgment upon the Canaanite people uh, for acts that were considered, would be considered uh, criminal in any modern society. You know, you know infant sacrifice, um, ritual prostitution, bestiality, incest, and so forth. Those are the sorts of things that the Canaanites engaged in. And so God... Uh, finally reaches the limit and says that's enough and then utilizes the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites. So again, it was a much more protracted sort of a thing. You have Canaanites dwelling in the land, uh, you know, for quite a while. Uh, and, you know, but, but the, the, the ultimate issue was not Canaanites themselves, but rather the Israelites imitating the practices of the Canaanites and keeping their, their shrines and their altars and so forth and incorporating them into their worship. That was the, that was the major issue. Okay. Yeah. That's super helpful. Thanks, Paul. Um, w one thing that I'd like to talk about briefly as we start to wrap up here is like, how can Christ bring out the heart of the matter? Like we're Christians. So we got to remember Christ. I feel like in this conversation, um, when we're looking at like the heart of the matter and everything we've talked about, like how can Christ help us like discern um, what to be thinking about? Yeah. Well, of course we do see that there are some differences, you know, Christ brings a, calls together a new covenant community, which does not have the same sort of uh, 
role that a, a national entity like ancient Israel had with borders, with uh, you know, with you know, with an army, with uh, with you know, courts uh, of of justice and punishments and so forth. So it, it looks a lot different with regard to the, the inter-ethnic people of God who are scattered throughout the nations. And of course, there's something you know, like church discipline uh, we read about in First Corinthians chapter five, where there is uh, rather than say some sort of a you know. Um, maybe physical punishment or uh, monetary payment, say, uh, you know, for an offense, uh, there is removal from the midst of the, the Christian community. Uh, so there might be repentance so that person's soul uh, or spirit might be saved. Um, you know, you do have also uh, Jesus who is not uh, denigrating the law of Moses and, and people like Greg Boyd say oh, Jesus is totally rejecting the law of Moses. No, he's not in, in, in Matthew chapter five, for example. Uh, Jesus is uh, addressing a misinterpretation of the law. And so people say Jesus was trashing the law uh, or, or, uh, or rejecting it. Um, we don't see Jesus approaching with that attitude, but rather a, a misuse. You've heard it said, but I say to you, uh, sort of a, an, an approach. Uh, so Jesus is not opposed to say, the principle of uh, just retribution, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but rather the misrepresentation of that when people personalize it and say, I'm going to get you back for what you did to me. Uh, so, so it, but it doesn't mean that there isn't uh, an appropriate place for God to bring justice and for people to, for God's people to pray for there to be justice that is done. So we see that even though there is a diminished emphasis on curse, on calling uh, for God to bring retribution, there's still, those things still do remain in the New Testament. And so we see that the martyrs in Revelation 6, the heavenly martyrs, redeemed martyrs, are calling on God to, uh, to bring justice for those who have shed their blood, who dwell upon the earth. And, uh, and, and so we see that there is this impulse for God to bring justice, that that is something that is part of the gospel, that those who refuse to repent, and we should desire the repentance of our enemies, and we even see that in the Old Testament. Um, but we also ought to be careful not, not to uh, make this our first impulse. We ought to pray for those um, people like those who persecuted the church, like the Apostle Paul, to pray that the Lord will be at work in their hearts. But when people are acting in tyrannical or dehumanizing ways, then for us to pray, even some of those imprecatory psalms, for God to bring an end to their tyranny, their domination, their uh, their abuse of other uh, of fellow human beings, uh, that is appropriate to, uh, to do. That is part of what God's um, just rule calls for, and um, and so so we do see some you know we do see some parallels. Jesus is still one. He is the one who says, "Come to me, you are weary, and I will give you rest." But he also says, you know, we read that Jesus is one who uh, will rule the nations with a rod of iron. A very strong language there. Uh, we see that Jesus is the one uh, who is the, you know, we see the, read about the wrath of the lamb in, in Revelation chapter six. So, so we do see both the kindness and severity of Jesus in the New Testament, that we can't escape that. We see Jesus driving out the money changers from the temple, that there are judgments. Jesus predicts the, you know, calls for judgment upon Israel, which comes through the Roman army that invades Jerusalem. So Jesus is warning like the Old Testament prophets are about judgment that is to come and calls on people to repent just like the Old Testament prophets did. So there is the continuity and I, and I go into detail on, on this in the book. Um, but so we see 
God's character is loving, desires to bless, desires to show grace and mercy. Um, but uh, when, when there's a time when God finally says that's it and brings judgment and, uh, and, and we see that kind of continuity across the Testaments. Hmm. Okay. That's super helpful, Paul. Um, and we can see, like, I like how you're emphasizing like really where we began, where we're saying there's continuity um, between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. And you're saying like with Jesus, with Jesus Christ, we can see that same continuity with the Old Testament and what he brings in the New Testament. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Paul. I, sure. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, maybe if you want to share like any like last thoughts you have and then share like what, what, what are you working on? Like, when we're looking at Paul Copan, Copan, um, okay. what's next That's with like project? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, I'm working on just, uh, you know, uh, I'll be doing a revision of my uh, book, True for You, but not for me, doing a third edition of that. Um, so I'm working on that this summer and into the fall, um, writing a, a couple of, uh, you know, I'm working on a, a book on Christianity called Christianity Contested, which deals with some challenges that come to uh, Christians with regard to faith and science or women in, in scripture or uh, or issues of sexuality uh, or uh, or the matter of, and I'll be doing a couple of chapters, one on servitude, one on warfare in the Old Testament. So I'm working on those two chapters and then another chapter for a book uh, um, on Christian apologetics with Blackwell, Wiley Blackwell Publishers. It's like an, a dictionary of uh, on Christian apologetics. And so I'll have a chapter on warfare uh, in that as well. So I've got a, got a few things going on here. I've got a, uh, a book on the uh, doctrine of what's called theosis in Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, basically of becoming God-like, becoming Christ-like, and, uh, and what that looks like in a Protestant tradition uh, like C.S. Lewis, John and Charles Wesley, um, uh, uh, you know, um, Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, um, uh, and, uh, and others who utilize that sort of language, Jonathan Edwards, uh, utilize that language of deification, not in the sense of we become, you know, you know, divine, like God is the creator. You know, there's a, obviously a, a distinction between us, but, but how Protestants have utilized that kind of a language of becoming God-like, becoming Christ-like, became, becoming partakers of the divine nature. So I'm working on an edited book uh, on that as well. Mm. Well, that's so cool, Paul. And we'll have to have you on again to talk about one. There's so many cool things you're doing. Um, and I love that. Um, and I love doing this because I get to have conversations about stuff like that and stuff like this. Um, so, Paul, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you're new to here in Apologetics, be sure to subscribe. Uh, we're doing a conversation like this, and it's getting released every Saturday at noon, rest of 2023. That is the plan. Um, and, yeah, we appreciate your time. And, Paul, thank you so much for coming on. Um, appreciate you and your work immensely. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Zach. All right. Have a good one, everyone, and God bless. We'll catch you next time.